Wednesday night is when we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book through the whole Bible. Uh, these are exciting times for Athey Creek because um, we're almost done with our second time through the Bible. We started in 1996 in the Gospel of John and then just started teaching right on through the Bible to Genesis and then back around and that was our first lap. Um, and then uh, we're on our second lap and we're almost done with that. It only takes, took us about 15 years this time. Uh, so, you know, uh, if, you, uh, if you want, uh, you, you know, join in with us uh, on our se- third lap uh, through the Bible. It's, it's such a rich thing to have the whole counsel of God, the whole Bible. I think it's important to know the scriptures. So that's why we, we do it that way. Well, on Sundays, we take our Wednesday night uh, upcoming chapter and we'll draw a small text from that. And let's do that today. I'd like to show you a little section of a story from Luke chapter five. Why don't you turn with me to Luke five. Why do pediatricians get so frustrated? Because they have very little patience. (laughs) I know that's bad. My grandfather's really irritated and frustrated that he has to use a chair to, chairlift to go up the stairs. It's driving him up the wall. Um, how many cats? The kindergarten class was learning about addition and the teacher asked little Johnny, if, you, if I give you two cats, Jimmy gives you two more cats, um, and Sally gives you two more cats, how many cats do you have? And he thought for a second, he said, seven. And she said, no, Jimmy, that's incorrect. Uh, Let me say it again. I give you two cats, Jimmy uh, gives you two cats, and uh, Sally gives you two cats. And uh, how many do you have? And he said, seven. Um, She said, okay, let's do it another way. If I put two apples on your desk and then two more apples and then two more apples, how many apples do you have? And he thought, six. Good. So how many cats? Seven. Now this time she's getting really frustrated uh, and her, even kind of raises her voice a little bit. Um, she yells at him, Johnny, why do you keep saying seven? And he says, because I already have a cat at home. <laughs> I think being a kindergarten teacher would be a frustrating venture. Um, frustration. Uh, uh, we're, we're living in times uh, where people are frustrated. Uh, you're driving us up the wall with inflation and with politics and the world situation and uh, crisis seems to be almost everywhere you look. People are anxious, people are upset. Uh, you know, as, as, as you know, pastors, we have people come in frustrated with life and, and um, you know, if it's not uh, you know, a single person, Brett, I'm single, why am I still single? Then the next person I have to, I'm married, why am I married? Uh, it's like, everybody's frustrated. Um, life is full of frustrations and it's difficult. Um, in fact, it's, uh, you know, um, it's so bad, um, we're watching things that are uh, new records that we would never wanna break, but we are, like the suicide rate. 2022 was the highest rate of suicide in the history of the world was 2022. The thing that's even more sad is we're already on a trajectory in 2023 to be worse than 2022. People are frustrated, people are upset, depressed, full of anxiety, fill in the blank. There's a lot of things that people are upset about. But I wanna say this, and I know this might sound trite and people go, yeah, 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 when I say stuff like this, but what the world needs is Jesus Christ. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. Um, Jesus even said, peace give I to thee, not as the world gives. The world tries to help you out, The world will try to show you what peace looks like or what feels like, but it's a pseudo peace that it's not lasting. But Jesus gives you a peace that passes understanding and he he fills your life. 
Jesus is the one who satisfies. Everything you try to, try to fill your soul with, you're gonna find it all to be empty. Money, wealth, popularity, relationships. It can be very, very empty, but Jesus is the one who is actually the, the fulfiller, the sustainer, the author, the perfecter uh, of our faith. And I love that we can look to Jesus Christ. We have here a story in Luke chapter five, verses one through 11, where Jesus is now, he's been baptized. He went through the wilderness temptation there. And now he's getting ready to call his disciples. Um, and he's gonna start here with Peter, James, and John, the fishermen from the region of Galilee. Um, let's take a look. It's Luke chapter five, verse one. It came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two ships standing by the lake. But the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. Now pause, I always like to kind of get into the vibe and have a sense of what's happening here in this story. The Sea of Galilee. Um, you say, Brad, it doesn't say Sea of Galilee. It says the Lake of Gennesaret. Is it a lake or a sea? Um, or is it uh, you know, Galilee or is it Gennesaret or Gennesaret or whatever? Well, there's a, a little bit of an answer there. Lake Gennesaret, as Luke calls it here, was the Hebrew word for the Sea of Galilee. Um, it, uh, the word was Kinnereth in the Hebrew, uh, where we got the word Gennesaret. Um, but the Kinnereth, and then that word Kinnereth, which means Sea of Galilee, um, can, comes from the word Kinnerer, which means lyre or harp, like an instrument. And why did they call the Sea of Galilee a harp? Because uh, the shape of the Sea of Galilee was like a first century harp. Um, you know, if you take a first century harp and you superimpose, um, you say, well, Brett, that's not exact. Um, I agree. I would call it the Sea of Steak. <laughs> <clears throat> It's a perfect fit. Uh, I don't know, it's, I guess it's whatever you're into. Um, but uh, man, I'm hungry, I could go for some lunch right about now, uh, a little early. But anyway, <clears throat> um, so the Sea of Galilee at its width, uh, widest part, it's eight miles wide, but at its uh, longest uh, uh, north-south, it's uh, about 13 miles. So it's about twice the size of Crater Lake for you Oregonians, we, we know. Um, but I love taking on, when we'd go to Israel, I love bringing Eighth the Creekers to the Sea of Galilee because it's, it's, it's a pretty amazing area. It's beautiful. This particular day, uh, when Mike and I were filming on this boat, we were out on the Sea of Galilee with Eighth the Creekers. <clears throat> it was a, there was a dust storm that came in, dust blowing in from Iraq. Uh, and it was quite windy and, and it was kind of fun, uh, dramatic day there. But we were just uh, floating out there. We did some worship in the boat and sang some songs and did a teaching out there. Later, we went ashore and uh, um, we went to the shoreline where Peter saw Jesus cooking up the fish and Peter, uh, Jesus had come and dined. So we did some worship there and, and um, just kind of that dusty day. It was, it was a good time visiting the Sea of Galilee. But you can see it's a pretty big lake. Um, it looks further off in the distance, but this is a different day. I was up on the cliffs of insanity. I mean, the Arbel Cliffs uh, there in uh, Galilee. This is a great view, I'll tell you why. The Arbel Cliffs has some interesting history. There was some, some uh, Jews that were thrown off these cliffs back in the Roman days, but that's a whole nother story. But um, this, this shot that I'm, I'm showing you here from the uh, Arbel Cliffs, this is where 75% of the gospel happened, right in this picture. Um, you can see, uh, if you know your Sea of Galilee geography, you can see the little um, ruin of Capernaum. You can see the little town of Magdala. Um, all these little towns that Jesus ministered to and went and spoke in the synagogues, it's all in what they call here the Gospel Triangle. 
Um, the gospel triangles where 75% of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John happened. The other 25% happened mostly in Jerusalem. There were some other times where Jesus went to the Decapolis cities uh, and was other places, but he spent 75% of his ministry right here in this picture uh, on this, this side of the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Another thing that's kind of interesting uh, as it relates to our story is um, there's a kibbutz that I've stayed at years ago uh, called Naf Ginosar. And they've built this amazing little uh, um, building because they found, in 1986, they found a boat that was in the mud of the Sea of Galilee on a summer where the water receded. They found some nails and some wood and they dug up this, this ancient, and it's actually a first century from 2000 years ago, a fishing boat that was buried in the mud of the Sea of Galilee. And it's like the wood was almost like petrified. So they wrapped it in foam, floated it out, and brought it in and put it in this museum where you can see, uh, you never know, Jesus could have ridden in this boat, who knows? It's not like, you know, there's millions of boats and towns around there, especially during the time of Christ. Um, there was only a couple little towns on the Sea of Galilee. Um, but this was a first century fishing boat. It makes, it makes sense why when there were storms, the disciples were freaking out. It doesn't look very seaworthy if you ask me, um, even if it was new, like the picture. But, but all that to say, um, when the Bible says the Sea of Galilee, we Oregonians might call it a lake. When it says they, that they saw some ships on the sea, we would call them boats. Um, it's, it's just the translational issues and stuff, but this is probably about the size of the boat that Jesus and Peter, James, and John would be using. So um, by the way, this is kind of a freebie for you, kind of interesting. When they found this boat, they called it the Jesus boat. The Pope came down in 1986 and said, um, um, you know, this is a Jesus boat. So this really should belong to the Catholic church. Um, you need to give it to us. And the, the people of Nafganasar, they, they came and said, uh, thanks, but no thanks. Um, here's a key to our city. They gave him a little, you know, brass key to the city. It's like, uh, here's your key, but you don't get our boat. So I'm glad because um, the Catholics always build like the Millennium Falcon over something like this and you can't really see it anymore. Uh, I, like, I like just seeing stuff and it's kind of um, not so crazy atmosphere. Um, but all that to say, um, if, if you go to Galilee, you definitely wanna kind of go see this boat. It's kind of a fun visit. Anyway, uh, back to our story. So they're, they're, um, they're there. Uh, Jesus is now gonna call the disciples. Let's take a look, verse three. And he entered into one of the ship's boats which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught. The word draught meaning catch. Um, and Simon answering said, Master, we have toiled all night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net break. And they beckoned unto the, uh, their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both ships so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus's knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished and all that were with him at the draught of fishes which they'd taken. And so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their ships to the land, they forsook all and followed him. 
The calling of the disciples, what a cool story. Um, how does Jesus find these guys? They're on the shores of Galilee. Um, Jesus finds his disciples um, in kind of a frustration. They'd been fishing all night, they caught nothing. And now Jesus, this itinerant rabbi who's a traveling speaker or whatever, says, hey, uh, Simon, would you please let me borrow your boat for a bit? And Simon lets Jesus use his boat. It's kind of an interesting thing. But the story ends up where they follow Jesus uh, and their, their, their job description changes from fishers of fish to become fishers of men. And I believe that there were some lessons that we can look at here that I think are important for us. I think it'd be good for us to take these little snapshots of lessons, five lessons out of this story. The first lesson I would like to talk about is a preparation made. Um, what preparation was made? Well, I think it's interesting that Peter, James, and John, they had a tough night fishing the night before, but what does Jesus find them doing? He finds them washing their nets. They were preparing for another day of fishing. Uh, you know, I'm probably fickle enough, if I had a night of fishing all night and caught nothing, I think I'd be not washing my net, I'd be eBaying my nets or putting them on Craigslist saying, I must, I'm not good at this. Like, this is a, uh, what kind of a living is this? You'd get frustrated by not catching. But I like that these guys were saying, let's prepare for the next night so maybe we'll catch some fish. And they're preparing. You might say they were doing the menial task of just being consistent and faithful to set themselves up to be able to catch some fish in the future. Um, why would the fishermen of the first century in Galilee wash their nets? Um, I was reading about this. There's actually several reasons they would wash their nets. And the word wash in the Greek can also mean mend. Mend and wash is the idea. They would mend if the nets had ripped or torn or became uh, weak, they would mend them. But they would wash them because there were minerals in the Sea of Galilee that would go bad when they were exposed to air. And then uh, also they would be uh, everything from you know, algae to fish guts caught in the net. And you'd clean it with fresh water, like well water, or the head of the Jordan River, the headwaters. They would, they would wash their nets to be nice and clean, um, which made them more effective. If you threw a stinky, dirty, algae-filled net um, uh, in the water, somehow the fish would repel from it. But if you washed your nets and got them all ready, then you were ready to throw them in and use them again and the fish would be caught. That's the plan. Um, I like that these guys, even though they came up empty, they were just being faithful to do the menial task to be ready. If, what if they said, yeah, whatever, what a tough night, and they just went home. They would have missed the, ca the catch that they're about to have that Jesus was gonna provide. I love this. Um, I think this is an important thing. Sometimes, you know, people... Uh, we'll just sit around. We talked about this at the Ironworks yesterday with the brothers in our men's meeting. We, we talked about, don't just sit around and complain about what you can't do, but do what you can. That's kind of the mentality of these guys. They're saying, well, we came up empty this night, but let's clean our nets. Let's wash them, mend them so that we're ready for the next one. And because they were ready, Jesus said, throw your nets in. The nets were ready to roll. And because of that, Jesus said, watch what I'm gonna do. And then supernaturally, Jesus blew their minds, filled both boats full of fishes. I wonder if some of us are missing the fullness of the blessing of Christ because we're not willing to do just the menial, normal things that are boring or not as impressive or fun, but we're not willing to be obedient to Christ. That's kind of a thing we have to be careful for. Um, you know, we, we, uh, we, we talk about this, you know, where um, I've noticed that some people don't do what they need to do to be ready for a miracle. Um, you know, like, let's say you're a single person and you wanna be married. 
Um, and so uh, I, I, I've heard it, I've been around for a long time, you know, ministry, I used to do singles ministry when I was a pastor in a different church. And I mean, I've, I've, I've been a part of this, but I've always noticed how singles like to blame everybody else. Well, there's nobody out there, uh, like everybody's wacko. I'm the only one who's squared away. And I guess I just can't, you know, um, I've noticed there's a little bit of that. But you know, I, one thing that I've noticed and having done over a thousand weddings, I'm somewhat of an expert on this kind of stuff. Um, because I've just done so much premarital counseling and stuff like that. And, but I would just say, you know, uh, the old saying is true. Um, finding, it's not about finding the right person as much as it's about being the right person. Let Jesus be the miracle to bring whoever it is that he has for you. But in the meantime, wash the nets, you know, mend the nets, get your life squared away and do what God's called you to do. And, and then if he wants you to be married, he'll bring the right person and that, that's gonna take a miracle, especially for some of you I've noticed, but no, I'm just kidding, just a joke, a little, little single joke there. Um, no, I, I, I believe singles ask the wrong question. Why am I still single? The right question is for what purpose am I single? What does God have for my, my, my singleness? And by the way, Paul the apostle argues for singleness. He says, I would that you be all single like me because he was so effective at ministry, he was able to serve the Lord wholly. Um, maybe that's what the Lord would have you do. Uh, and that's just one example. Um, we could even talk about people that are not setting themselves for the blessings of Christ, not just because they're not doing what Jesus wants them to do, but they're doing what he doesn't want them to do. It's called sin. And we're not setting ourselves up for blessings when we end up walking and said, let me give you another example. So leave the single thing. Let's talk about the young couple that's engaged to be married. And they, um, they think that God's gonna bless them, but they're doing what everybody in this culture, in our world does. They move in together and live together before they're married. That doesn't jibe with the Bible. Um, well, where does the Bible say, thou shalt not cohabitate before you're married? Well, it doesn't really say that. It does say in 1 Corinthians 7, um, it is good for a man not to touch sensually a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and every wife have her own husband. The idea of sexuality of any kind um, is only for the marriage relationship, not for the cohabitators. Well, Brett, we are living together, but we don't sleep together. We're living together, but we don't, we're not, there's no sexuality in our relationship. Um, I would say, liar. And if you, are, if you are able to, I've said it a thousand times, I'll say it again. If you are living together and you're not tempted to be sexual with one another, you have no business getting married. Like your marriage is gonna be very boring. Please find someone who you are sexually drawn to. Um, so much so that if you live together, you would not be able to abstain. That's kind of what you're looking for in a spouse. If you can abstain while you're living in the same house, you have no business being married. Just, I'm giving you freebie stuff here. This is free. Um, it's just true though. Um, but don't be like the rest of the world and say, here's why, Brett, you're just trying to be legalistic, telling us not to live together. No, I would love for you as a couple to receive the greatest blessing that God has for you. The marriage bed is undefiled. That's what the Bible says. But anything outside of marriage that's sexual in nature is fornication. That's what the Bible defines as fornication. So young couples wonder, why are we not blessed? What's going on? You know, it's not even like even only spiritual. It's also, um, you know, practical as it turns out. Um, and that is, um, you know, this idea of, of being pure before the Lord and doing, doing what he calls you to do. Man, I would hope that all of you do that. But rather than just sitting around, well, I'm open to being blessed, you got a posture 
yourself for the blessings that God wants to pour out on you. Um, there's an Old Testament example, by the way, of someone who was busy doing what they were supposed to be doing, but uh, almost got off course. I love the story in 1 Chronicles 17. It's where David gets the idea to, um, to build the temple. Uh, in fact, let me just read to you. Uh, David calls Nathan the prophet <coughs> into his palace, you know, where he's living. And it says, now it came to pass, this is chapter 17, verse one, that David sat in his house and David said to Nathan the prophet, lo, I dwell in a house of cedar wood, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord remains under a curtain. And then Nathan said to David, do all that is in thine heart, God is with thee. Um, now this prophet, Nathan, has a little thing called foot and mouth disease. He put his foot in his mouth. What do you mean, Brett? Well, he said, knock yourself out, David, God's with you. But as it turns out, Nathan goes home that night and before he's going to bed, the Lord says, <clears throat> Nathan, Mr. Prophet, you misspoke. Go and tell David he is not supposed to build the temple. You didn't, you didn't ask me about this. And you just said, knock yourself out, David. And so Nathan had to eat humble pie and go talk to David and said, I remember I told you to go build the temple. Well, as it turns out, <clears throat> the Lord doesn't want you to do it. Uh, it's because you're a man of war and you got blood on your hands. And the Lord says, man, that's just not your calling to build the temple. So what did David do? Did he pout? Wowsy, wowsy, woo, woo. I can't build the temple in Jerusalem. Was he pouting and bummed? No. I love what David does. David goes and says, okay, if I can't build the temple, then I'm gonna just go and do what I'm really good at. Does anybody know what David was really good at? Killing people. That was his gift. Uh, you say, but that's not a gift, that's horrible. No, no, literally, David was a skilled warrior, Navy SEAL Team Six kind of guy. Like he could go off and, uh, you know, remember the ladies would sing, Saul has killed thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands of soldiers. David was known to be really good in battle. Even when he was an old man, he was out fighting battles. Uh, he could barely, you know, walk and he's still fighting battles and he almost got killed because he was so old. He's out there, king, king, king. And the guy said, David, you've fought long enough. Time to go home, take some Geritol. Uh, like, uh, uh, like David was a, a serious warrior. That's, that's what he was really, really good at. So this is where it cracks me up. Chapter 17 of 1 Chronicles says, David, you can't build the temple. Chapter 18, well, this is funny if you read it. In chapter 18, David, I'll just read you the highlights. Uh, verse one, David smote the Philistines and subdued them and took the city of Gath. If you know Gath, that's the major city of Philistines. Then verse two, he smote Moab. Verse three, he smote Hadrezer, king of Zobah. Verse four, he took from Hadrezer a thousand chariots and he hoffed. What's hoft? Means to pull up by the roots. He hoffed all the chariots and their horses from Hadrezer, plucked up by the roots. Um, verse five, David slew the Syrians. Verse seven, David took the shields of gold. Da verse nine, David, um, uh, Tau, the king of Hamath, heard how David had smitten all the army. So when you put all those words together, smitten, took, slew, hoft, took, smote, smote, smote. David just goes on a rampage. You say, but that's not very nice. Um, keep in mind, uh, we live in a culture, you know, there's um, peace and all this stuff, and we understand that, and we love peace. There's not gonna be any real peace until Christ returns. That's, that's kind of important to know. But did you know that warfare is something God endorsed even in the Old Testament? He called his people to war. Well, Brett, I like the New Testament God more than I like the Old Testament God. Um, do you know God does not change? He's not changing at all. 
And if you don't think God's a God of war, just wait till the second coming of Christ. The Lord is gonna return and make war against all the nations. That's coming. Don't mistake, we know Jesus as the carpenter from Nazareth, but he's coming as a conqueror from heaven in his second coming. So let's remember, warfare is still part of the deal. Um, and David, as it turns out, was called by God to destroy these people. Now you say, that's so mean. No, it was merciful. Um, these people uh, that David killed, the Malachites, the Moabites, the Jebusites, the flashlights, all these different people, um, they were a bunch of pagans. They were the people sacrificing their babies on altars. And God says, I want you to destroy them. Um, lest their behavior would bleed off into the, the Jews' behavior and sacrificing children, which it actually did during the reign of Solomon, sad to say. But David went and did what God had called him to do, and he was good at it. Can I just say, I've noticed in the years of ministry that the, the people that have a self-awareness are way more successful than people that are not very self-aware. There's something about a person who really has a self-awareness. Now, how you get self-awareness, that's a long discussion. Uh, some people have it, some people just don't. Other people learn to find out what other people say so that they can be aware of the way others see them. But it's a huge gift. If you're a person who's self-aware, the problem is the people that are not self-aware, you're tuning me out right now saying, whatever, I don't even know what you're talking about. Listen to me. Self-awareness. One of the keys in self-awareness is knowing what you're good at. Um, doing what your gifting is and sticking with that. Um, a lot of people make the mistake of liking what other people do, saying, well, I do this really well, but I wanna do that. And you may or may not be good at that. Um, maybe you've noticed that, it's probably one of the most obvious is like if you watch American Idolatry, I mean American Idol, <laughs> uh, something like that show where people are trying out to sing and stuff. And have you ever noticed the people that are big and say, yeah, I'm a singer, that's what I do. And then they go up and sing and you're just like, they can't sing at all. Then there's the people that are really, really good and they're like, you know, very humble and like, I don't know, I don't know if I even have a chance on this. And, and then they go sing and they blow everybody away. Um, that's both a case of not being self-aware. Um, but the person who knows what they're gifted in goes and pursues that and, and, and whatever God gifted you, and are you in the sweet spot right now in your life doing what God has really called you to do? Or have you been doing stuff that people expect you to do or you think you should be doing? That's something that's kind of important. David, he wanted to build the temple, but the Lord said, that's not in your wheelhouse, buddy. Go do what you're good at. Okay, and he goes off on a rampage and he's just good at battle. And the Lord still wanted to use David in that role of subduing the enemies of God. And God says, I'm gonna thump these nations. And he does using David. Um, all that to say, um, you know, is there something that, that, um, that the Lord is calling you to do and do what you're good at and, and, and then be faithful, even if it's the small stuff. Brett, I feel like I'm just sitting around washing nets. It's okay. Because the Lord is able to do exceedingly abundantly above what you would even ask for or think about. Just like he's about to do with the disciples with their fishing. Uh, he's gonna blow them out of the water. The fish are gonna fill the two ships to almost sinking. So, I like that, that they had a preparation. Even though it's a small menial thing that they're washing the nets, they were prepared to be blessed. And I would say that to you and to me to remind ourselves, just be faithful in the small things and watch what the Lord can do with that. The second uh, little observation here, a promised provision. It's not directly stated in the story, but it is taught in the word that you cannot outgive God. This story does illustrate that, I think, to a degree. Um, and it's just a truth I wanna point out. 
Um, you know, the Lord teaches us that we're supposed to um, give to him and let the Lord use us and the things that we possess. But you'll never be, like the Lord will never be a debtor to any man. The Lord will never owe you. You, could, you will never rightly be able to go to God and say, you owe me God, because the Lord's not a debtor to any man. That's what the Bible says. He even challenges us there in Malachi, says, um, test me on this. The one thing you can test God on, according to the Bible from Malachi, is test me on this. You've robbed me in that you've not given the tithe. Bring ye the tithe into the storehouse. He's challenging the Jews there. If you bring the tithes, then he says, and then see, test me. I will open the window of blessing from heaven and, and flood you to overfilling. And the Lord says, try me, test me. And I have found that the Lord is true and faithful in that every single time. It might not just be giving money, it could be giving your house. We know a lot of watch parties are watching with us right now. Uh, houses all over the world uh, watching, having service with us right now. Um, whoever house you're at, they're using their, their house for the Lord's purpose. Um, now this is the way I grew up. I grew up in a house that always had people studying the Bible. We did Wednesday night Bible study in my house for years. Um, we had communion. Uh, there's my mom, you know, just, uh, I, I'm not sure if she was praying at communion for like people not to spill their communion on our carpet or just praying to the Lord about communion, I don't know. But uh, I do know that my parents were willing to have people track into our house and spill their communion accidentally. And you know, it's hard to get purple you know, juice out of the white carpet, it's a little bit difficult. But my parents never once complained, I'll tell you why. Because it was such a blessing. Once we opened our house and used it for the purpose of the Lord, I think our house was just kind of particularly blessed. Kind of like Peter's boat was particularly filled with fish to overflowing. I grew up in a house that was overflowing with kindness, love, and the presence of the Lord. Um, and I was blessed by that. Um, the Lord will not owe you. So when you do, get, you say, Brett, what are you talking about? Peter was asked a favor. Jesus said, Peter, would you loan me your boat? Uh, okay, you know, I, I almost debated it this morning because I didn't caught, catch anything, put it on Craigslist. But, but, you know, if I were Peter, I'd like, man, I just got my nets clean. I think I'm gonna go home and go to bed. But Jesus said, would you put me in your boat and push me out a little bit? And why did Jesus do that, by the way? I believe he did it for uh, the fact that they didn't have a PA system and he was talking, talking to multitudes of people. And I think he was using the physics of sound waves and water. Have you ever been on the river, like in a boat, and you, you see a boat a half mile down the river, but you can hear every word they're saying? Because the sound travels across the water with ease. I think Jesus was saying, put me out in the boat, push me out a ways, and I'll speak to this multitude. Um, okay, Jesus, but you're gonna owe me. Well, Peter didn't say that. He loaned him his boat, and then when Jesus finished speaking, he said, hey, Peter, let's go out and catch some fish and then they end up filling two boats full of fish. You'll never be a debtor. God will never be a debtor to you. And the Lord wants to use the small things that you have, just let him do it. Don't be grungy or you know, holding on, clingy to your stuff, um, but be open and say, Lord, whatever I have is to your use and for your purpose. Peter does that and, the, and he gets the, the, the Jehovah Jireh treatment, my provider, and he provides a whole two loads of fish that, that day, pretty cool. Number three, as we look at these little stories here, a practical lesson. Um, if you look at carefully at verse five, do you sense a little frustration in Peter? Now, I'll admit I might be reading into this a little bit, but I read it like this and you tell me if I'm wrong. In verse five, before we get to verse five, verse four, Jesus says something that to a professional fisherman in those days, they would have said, 
you just speak to, uh, you just keep uh, teaching and be the rabbi guy. Leave the fishing to us. We know what we're doing. Now, <laughs> maybe Peter wasn't quick to say that because they came up empty that whole night. Uh, so they're maybe a little humbled. But Jesus says, launch out into the deep. Now, lesson number one, did you know that the, the fishermen of Galilee, they don't launch out into the deep water. You only launch out a little ways out into the water where your nets can be in the perfect location. But fishing out in the deep water was unheard of. You don't do that. That's not where the fish are. So, you know, here's Jesus telling a fisherman, go out into the deep. Problem number two, when does the fisherman fish? They fished all night. That's when the, the fishermen would do their fishing at night. Because once the sun comes up there in the Sea of Galilee, the fish are not as catchable and it's a big waste of time. So I... I wonder if Peter, when he, if we could read into it a little frustration, he's frustrated because he says in verse five, and Simon Peter answering said to him, master, we have toiled all night and have taken nothing. Now, now while he's saying this, like you non-fisherman, you, um, but I wonder if Jesus was looking at him with sort of a look of authority, kindness, but that gleam in Jesus's eye that I suspect he had as Peter saying, Lord, you know, we, we, the professionals, we've been fishing all night and came up empty and you want us to go out in the deep water and throw the nets in the middle of the day? Uh, hello? I, I get a sense that's what Peter's saying, but maybe he sees something because I, I sense a little change in his tune when he says, uh, nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the nets. Like, okay, uh, you know, maybe he saw Jesus looking at him like, try me on this. Peter. And so Peter's like, okay, nevertheless, I'll go lower the nets. Um, Brett, you're reading into that too much. I'll tell you why I don't think I am. What did Peter mean when he pull, they pull in two boatloads of fish? What, what, why did Peter freak out in verse eight? When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Why did he say that? It's because he had an attitude and he was doubting Jesus at his word. He was like, I don't know, man, we fished all night, Jesus, uh, but okay, whatever. We'll waste the time and throw the nets in the water. And now his fishes are overflowing out of his boat. He falls down and says, oh, Jesus, just leave. I, you're, not, you're too holy for me to be even in your presence. That's what he says when he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. I think Peter knows that he had the wrong attitude. Now, what saved him, however, even though he had the wrong attitude, what saved him is he did what Jesus told him to do, whether he thought it was logical or not. And this is the practical lesson I hope we can learn from this is Jesus will often ask you and me to do things that aren't exceedingly practical. And sometimes the least practical things that the Lord has led me to do are the things that have worked out the best. It's almost like in my life, the Lord wanted to say, Brett, I wanna use you, but I wanna make sure that nobody mistakes you for me. Like when people come up and say, Pastor Brett, tell us the secret. How did you grow Athey Creek into this giant church? Well, first of all, I never wanted a giant church. Uh, the idea of a big church freaked me out. I wanted, I came from a giant church and I knew the headache uh, of working with a giant church. And when I was a young guy, I thought I'm just gonna start a church and I, I'm gonna cap it off at 500. 500 or less is my, my plan. Um, if, 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 if even three or four people show up, I'll be happy, but, but I, I, I want a small. And then we hit 500 and then people just kept coming and then I was like, wait, wait, uh, hold on. And then it just kept growing. But um, when people come and say, Brett, or ask our leadership, you know, how did you guys do it? The answer is, we really don't know. Um, if you can explain it, it probably wasn't God. 
And we have seen God's mighty hand in our failures with all our stupidity and our lack of know-how, we truly have seen the Lord just be gracious to us. It's almost like the Lord says, I'm gonna choose to use the weak and the foolish things of this world to confound the wise because he wants to get all the credit. It's like with Gideon. Uh, Gideon had a small, tiny army. The Lord said, I wanna show that I can save by many or by few. It doesn't matter how many men are in your army, Gideon. I'm gonna have you conquer a giant army with just 300 men. That's the way the Lord works. So Peter, he's told, go out in the deep water, throw your nets in. Peter could have said, you know, that's ridiculous. I'm not gonna do that. I'll be embarrassed. The other fishermen will be seeing me fishing at noon in the deep water. They'll say, he's lost his mind. But Peter does this and he pulls in two boatloads of fish. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's an Old Testament story I'm reminded of there in 2 Kings chapter five. Um, remember the powerful leader from Syria named Naaman? He was a powerful, he had an army with him and he comes marching down. Why? He comes from Syria to um, the Jordan River area where the prophet of the Lord was there. Um, and Elijah was there just to, just to uh, you know, he wanted to hear this miracle guy who was down there for the Jews. And, and the reason why is because he had leprosy, that loathsome death sentence to a biblical character. If, if you had leprosy, your skin would just deteriorate. Parts of your body would start to fall off and you'd, die ultimately of infection, horrible way to die. So this powerful ruler from Syria comes down and says, you know, go get the prophet. Well, if the prophet of the Lord doesn't even leave out of his house, but he sends a messenger and says, tell the dude to go dip himself in the river seven times, the Jordan River, seven times. But Naaman, this powerful Syrian guy, he, he hears that and says, are you kidding? He's not even gonna come out and see me face to face. And he wants me to dip in the little Jordan River of the Jews. Um, we've got better rivers than this up in Syria. We're, I'm going out of here. And he starts marching out and he starts storming back to Syria, angry about this you know, prophet who wouldn't even come and talk to him face to face and told him to dip in the muddy Jordan River. Well, one of his little underling soldiers came and said, you know, Naaman, um, you, you're gonna die. What do you have to lose? Like, I know this river's not that impressive and all that, but he told you to dip seven times. What do you have to lose? Go dip seven times. Name is like, okay, whatever. And he goes over to the river, dip, 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 dip seven times. And when he comes out the seventh time, the Bible says his skin looked like baby's skin. It was all perfectly healed. And he almost missed it because of his pride, because he thought it was a stupid idea to go dip seven times in the Jordan River. I wonder how many of you, how many of us are missing some blessings because we're unwilling to do what the Lord wants us to do. We're missing out on the blessings. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting to me, uh, I mentioned, you know, the couples living together um, and how they're not being blessed. There's a, there's a study, uh, you know, done Pew Research along with Denver University did a big study um, highlighting the uh, risks of living together before not only just marriage, but even engagement. Psychologists, uh, Galena Rhodes, Scott Stanley say their findings indicate in 2023, that living together before being engaged can actually decrease the couple's odds of a successful marriage. Another interesting finding from the study is that having a higher number of previous uh, partners, uh, sexual partners, um, or having lived with romantic par partners, others, um, your uh, problem of failure in marriage starts to grow exponentially with higher risk of divorce. Couples who've lived together before they're married are 48% more likely to divorce than couples who moved in together after being married, the new study found. This is not a Christian group studying this. This is the secular world saying, yeah, as it turns out, your, your marriage is gonna be less successful if you're living together first. 
Who would have known? Well, the Bible, the Bible teaches us that. And yet there's people saying, that's stupid. I don't wanna dip in that Jordan River. Everybody else, they, they all sleep together before they're married. Come on, this, what everybody does. Yeah, but you're not gonna get blessed. Hear the words of the Lord when he, when he tells us, you know, obedience is not, not just a bummer. Obedience turns out to be a blessing if you do what the Lord calls you to do. Peter could have said, I'm not sticking my nets in the deep water. Naaman could have said, I'm not dipping in the Jordan. But when the Lord asks you to do something, don't live together before you're married. Okay, we're not gonna do that because we want the Lord's best. We want our boat overflowing. We want our, our leprosy gone. And yet the question is, what are you gonna do? Are you gonna keep hanging on to your sins? Um, Hebrews, the author of Hebrews chapter 12, verse one, wherefore seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so doth easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. The author of Hebrews is saying, we're running this race of life. And yet there's people running around with this huge weight on their back. When, I, when we were riding motocross out, we were actually doing desert riding this one particular time, a bunch of eighth Greek guys. And one of the goofballs in our group, every time we'd stop, there's this one guy who would sit down and rest on a rock. And, and then um, our buddy Mike, he would come and, and take a rock and sneak it and put it in this guy's backpack. And then we'd take another break. He'd take another rock and sneak it in. And whenever he had a chance, when the guy wasn't looking, and by the end of the day, he had like 40 pounds of rocks in his bag. We were all just laughing because you could see him, his, his spring on his bike was like down like this as he's trying to ride it and he's like getting a little squirrely and stuff. But um, I remember about lunchtime, he took off his pack and he set it on the ground. I went <coughs> like rocks, you know? And he's like, okay, you guys, what's going on? He pulled out, it was like, you know, 20 rocks in there. It was pretty funny watching this guy. Um, it was a weight that was so easily besetting him. That's what this is talking about, this verse. And, and the sin that you and I cling to, the Lord is saying, don't do it. If we're obedient, it's like taking a weight off that's causing you to be held back. Um, and this is an important lesson that Peter actually sees. He, he, he did what Jesus told him to do and the Lord blessed him. So preparation made, number one. Number two, a promised provision. Number three, a practical lesson. But number four, a personal calling. This is where Jesus calls his disciples. And we read in verse 10, where he said, fear not from henceforth, thou shalt, <coughs> excuse me, uh, catch men. Um, <laughs> this is a funny way of putting it. You shall catch men. This might, for some of you single girls who want to be married, this is your life verse right here. Um, <laughs> no, um, but, but if you read it in Matthew 4, 19, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You are fishermen today, but I'm gonna make you fishers of men. Your, jo your job description is now changing. The word catch here in Luke is an interesting Greek word, zireo, which means to take alive, to pull out. The analogy of Jesus making the disciples into fishers of men is to pull them out of their sin into salvation so that they might be saved alive is the idea. That's the word, to save them alive. And so for them to become disciples of Jesus, they were called to be fishers of men. And I believe if you are a disciple, which you should be if you're a Christian, you should make this part of your calling too. You and I are called to be fishers of men. I've noticed that too many church people are too aquarium centric. Uh, the church is the aquarium. We're the fish that had already been caught. And everybody's like, oh, we're going to church. We're gonna worship the Lord, serve the Lord. I'm not sure this is where you're supposed to serve the Lord as much. I mean, I'm so thankful for the 2000 plus volunteers we have. And they serve the Lord here and they're blessed. But I think most of you are called probably to go out into all the world, preach the gospel and, and be fishers of men. There's a lot of people that need to be caught. 
Um, by the way, on this idea of the catch, um, I, I think we make a mistake uh, on this idiom of Jesus um, that he's using about being fishers of men. And that is the mistake of trying to clean fish before you catch the fish. You can't clean a fish before you catch it. Have you ever tried fishermen, you anglers out there, to try to clean a fish before you catch it? It's really hard. Uh, it's, I'd say it's impossible. Um, but if you go out there and yell at people that are getting abortions, as some Christians think it's a good idea, go yell at them. You're trying to clean the fish before they're caught. They're gonna have more abortions and they're gonna want abortions uh, because they're not saved. They haven't been repentant and, and, and saved and a regeneration that needs to take place and a changing of heart. That comes by the Lord's work. He changes our hearts. See, we are to be the fishers of men. The Lord is the one who cleans up the fish. That's his job. But I think sometimes we spin our wheels as Christians trying to politically change people without salvation and the gospel. Uh, the gospel is the key. That's what's gonna change people. If we're gonna gain any ground in this world that we live in, it's not gonna be yelling at people or picketing or marching as much as it's gonna be about showing the love of Christ that we need to repent of our sins and be saved. Salvation is what people need. So God does the cleaning. He's called us to be the fishers of men. Um, so that's the personal calling that I think we all have. Number five, uh, on our little snapshots of lessons, there's also a potential problem. Um, and, and I sort of sense it, maybe you do too, in verse 11. Did you see verse 11 as we kind of ended the story there? And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. Da, 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 the end. You're like, that's a great ending. Question, is that the ending of the story? Did they really forsake all? Did they really forsake their boats? Question, did the disciples ever return to those boats? Because if you read that, you think, oh, they, they, they followed Jesus from that point on and forevermore, right? Did the disciples ever go back to their boats? Yes. If you recall, for three years, the disciples followed Jesus and were disciples of Jesus. But after he died on the cross and was buried in the tomb, the disciples were bummed. The disciples were sitting around, you know, freaking out, shaking in their sandals, afraid they were next to be killed or crucified. So there in John chapter 21, do you remember the story? Peter's there going, this is a drag man, sitting here afraid. He says, I'm gonna go fishing. And all the other disciples says, yeah, we're gonna go with you. And so Peter and James and John and a bunch of the other disciples, probably even the non-fishermen, they all kind of went and said, yeah, let's go fishing. So they went back to Galilee, dusted off their old fishing boats that they forsook in verse 11, dusted off their old fishing boats and went out there and went fishing. And you know what happened? They caught nothing. It's just like where Jesus found them. Jesus found them in their boats catching nothing. They serve him with him for three years and they go back to their BC days. They're before Christ days. And they start fishing again and they end up catching nothing again. You see, there is a temptation for you if you're a Christian, especially if you're an old timer Christian, is to remember the good old days when you were back in your BC days. Ah, oh, I remember the good days. It was so nice after work going to the bar with all my friends. Um, it was awesome. And have you ever noticed how we glorify the, the good old days when they really weren't good old days? The bar you went to was a place where losers go. It was, they always turned down the lights because everybody's so ugly and the smoke's floating around through there. And some lady in her 60s is up there singing feelings, nothing more than feelings. Hey, where you from? Hey, feelings. And, and there you are, you know, slamming them down. And then you're puking in the toilet the next morning. Do you remember the good old days? They weren't that good. It's like the children of Israel 
when they left, 450 years of being slaves in Egypt, they were so tortured. It says they were being whipped with the whips of the taskmasters of Egypt. And then finally they were delivered. Well, shortly thereafter, they're wandering in the wilderness and they say, oh, this is, we're sick of this loathsome bread, this manna. We remember the good old days, they said, when we, uh, had, we ate freely fish. Did they ever eat anything freely there in Egypt? And the answer is no, they were slaves. Don't forget, they were not free at all. We remember when we freely did eat fish and the cucumbers and the melons, the leeks, the onions and the garlics. Now, I don't know what they're remembering about that. I don't ever remember vegetables being worth anything. But that's just me. We remembered, oh, the good old days. No, it was the bad old days. You were slaves, hello. And there's a propensity for us to think, oh, I wish I could go back to those good old days when really you were empty, just like Peter was empty. His nets were empty before he met Jesus. Then Jesus comes along and fills his net, gives him a new job assignment, and his life is now important and it's effective and it's gonna shape the whole church of Jesus Christ for all of history to come. But he's tempted to go back to his stinky little fishing boat, even though the Lord called him out of that. Question, while Jesus, or why Peter was in that stinky fishing boat with the disciples, where was Jesus there in John 21? What was he doing? Anybody remember? He was on the shore cooking up fish. He'd already caught the fish. He'd, he was already cooking the fish. He had what they were looking for and he had it all along. Peter sees Jesus and he jumps out of the boat, swims to shore and Jesus says, Peter, come and dine. Come and eat. You see, Jesus is the one that satisfies your soul. He's the one that's got what you need. He knows what you need before you already have it. And he's the one, Jesus is the one you need. He's the one we look for. He's the savior. He's our Lord. Don't go back to the good old days. They weren't good old days. But be a disciple of Jesus and go with your calling. Do what you're called to do. What is the area of gifting God has given to you? And be faithful in those things. Um, I find these people in these New Testament stories and Old Testament stories for that matter, extremely relatable. There's so much we can learn. Follow Jesus and your nets will be full. You say, Brett, well, are you suggesting that if I follow Jesus, everything's gonna be rosy? No, I'm saying this. You can be frustrated with life and have trouble and inflation and relationship problems and all that, and you can go with that by yourself, or you can go through that life of frustration, inflation, politics, and relationship problems, walking with the Prince of Peace, who's the author and the perfecter of our faith. It's your choice. You can have trouble with, with Christ or without him. What are you gonna do? I would choose Christ every single time. He's faithful.